Hello, welcome to the fourth episode of the 21cc podcast, brought to you by the Chartered Institute of Building. I'm Rod Sweet, editor of Global Construction Review. We've got a great podcast for you. You may have heard that just as the UK was gearing up to go back to school this month, the government warned that a certain type of structural element used in schools and other public buildings might fail without warning. It's a big challenge for building managers because the elements can be hard to spot. But as we'll hear, experts from Loughborough University have developed an AI tool that can analyse thousands of images of a building's interior to detect the presence of this material. This month's Jargon Buster will clear up any confusion over what Scope 3 emissions are when they're at home. And we head to Antarctica to hear from two young engineers about what it's like to build in the coldest place on Earth. First, though, rugby. As things hot up in the group stage of the 2023 World Cup, and as the Premiership season gathers steam, we nip over to the city of Bath, where an unsolicited proposal for Bath Rugby's new stadium has captured imaginations. We, we had been thinking of this for some time, and when Bath Rugby came along with their scheme, we obviously thought, well, now we have to put our ideas out there if we believe in them. Really, it's a project about conviction. It's not, yes, it's certainly not born to try and sort of stymie what Bath Rugby are doing as a kind of just pure protest. We are, if you like, architectural idealists. We believe we see a solution that would do justice to Bath's heritage. And so we feel it's our, our kind of duty to share it. That's Mark Wilson-Jones, director of Apollodorus Architecture. He teaches architectural history and theory at the University of Bath, and last month, he and colleague Jacob Ring set a cat amongst the pigeons with a startling proposal to make the long-planned new stadium for Bath Rugby a Roman-style coliseum. I live in Bath, and I'm researching a book about its history, so when they unveiled their counter-proposal, it fell on very fertile ground. Full disclosure, I really, really, really like the Colosseum idea. Mark thinks it improves on the design the club is advancing now, a modern, minimalist, rectangular structure whose main job, apart from seating 18,000 people, seems to be not sticking out. The Colosseum really sticks out. It's big, bold, and distinctly Romanish. It probably won't happen, though. Mark said Bath Rugby cordially declined their idea earlier this year, and the club is expected to submit its planning application to the council at any moment. I suppose I'll get over that, but the Colosseum idea does scratch an itch for me, a deep one, one I didn't even know I had, because Bath's Roman origins are largely invisible now, unless you go underground to the excellent Roman Baths Museum. Some context. For three centuries before Rome bit the dust, people came from all over the Roman world to visit this city with its miraculous hot springs. The Baths and Temple Precinct covered a 10-hectare area, pretty much the footprint of the later medieval walled town. A big, barrel-vaulted stone building enclosed the bathing complex while an imposing temple to Minerva commanded the sacred space. When the Romans left, people forgot all about that, but it's all pretty much still there, in pieces, buried under four metres of rubble and debris accumulated over the subsequent 13 centuries. I find it frustrating to be cut off visually from this seminal period of Bath's history. So the Colosseum proposal thrilled me in a way that architectural concepts rarely do. It just felt so right. I wasn't alone. Mark says they've been inundated by public support, and broadcaster Andrew Neal is among those praising the idea. He called it stunning. 
The question I had was, does Bath's extraordinary hidden Roman heritage itself constitute a case for a Colosseum? Now, my mate Jonathan says I've got a low eureka threshold, meaning I'm susceptible to sudden all-encompassing enthusiasms. He's right, so I spoke to someone who really knows their stuff about Roman Bath, the archaeologist Peter Davenport. Peter has dug extensively in and around Bath. He was director of excavations for Bath Archaeological Trust, and his 2021 book, Roman Bath, includes great new insights. When I invited him to jump up onto my bandwagon, however, Peter declined. I find it quite an attractive scheme, but then I step back and I look at it and I think there was never anything like that in Roman Bath, in Aquae Sulis, that looked so Roman. The Colosseum itself, we call it that, it's quite a nice idea to reduce it to an oval, I think. I can see their thinking along those lines. But again, what they've produced is something that never probably got any further north than Paris at the outside. And typically now, if you want to go and find one that looks like that, in Arles, in southern France. So I can see, you know, their thinking. But I just don't think it really picks up. It picks up on an idea of Roman bath that is probably Victorian rather than a modern version. The other aspect of it is that although Georgian Bath um, was based very much on Georgian and Renaissance ideas of what ancient Rome was like, especially seen through the eyes of the architect Palladio, who's a 16th century architect in Italy, what was built um, in Bath gives us its, its, its present day aspect was very new and creative. Again, not very much like things the Romans built, except in detail, columns and pediments and mouldings around windows and so on. So a Colosseum or a Roman baths in the rec, recreation ground where it's going to be if it is ever built doesn't really match Georgian bath either. There is a practical issue as well. Um, when the Southgate Shopping Centre, which is a kind of a, it is rather a pastiche Georgian, I quite like it, but I always try to think of it as a film set rather than a piece of architecture. When that was being planned back in the 90s, I was involved in some of the discussions around what was going to be built. And the architect at the time, who was very much a classically-minded, Georgian-minded architect, wanted to build in a certain way. And the quantity surveyors and the, other, and the engineers basically told him there weren't enough masons, there weren't enough stonework built, there, wasn't enough, there weren't enough carvers and so on to produce the details he wanted. So what they've done largely is um, the, the architectural details that are there are rather simplified and are slightly coarse and not very accurate um, because they're, they're done cheaply and, and some of it's cast concrete, some of it's roughly uh, simply carved stone. I am afraid something similar might happen to this proposal if it went ahead in any way. The other issue, of course, is that this is going to be very expensive. <laughs> you might say, yes, well, it's quality. We need to pay, spend money. But where's the money going to come from? <laughs> what kind of cost escalation are we looking at? Well, to be honest, I don't know and I'm not qualified, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's going to cost twice as much to build this counter-proposal as it is now because uh, it's going to be very labour-intensive, very skill-intensive and material-expensive. Bath stone is not the cheapest material and you, end up, you, you may well end up with... Um, you probably will end up with a thin skim of bath stone over a concrete structure and also lots of bath stone coloured render because that's cheap and it doesn't look too bad. <laughs> that's, that, that, I think there are my concerns. It's going to be very difficult to achieve this regardless of how attractive or interesting or useful you think it might be. But it looks so neat. <laughs>
Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's... I, I don't find it unattractive. I think it, it looks quite good. But so many architectural... The, the kind of 3D architects' models and architects' um, computer models, they all look wonderful. <laughs> they always do. Speaking of cost, there's something I didn't mention. The Apollodorus plan also involves redeveloping the 1970s leisure centre that awkwardly abuts the stadium site to the south. Mark and Jacob see a new leisure centre complex that would interact with the Coliseum and provide a new public space, which is way more than Bath Rugby ever set out to do. Mark gets that. Now, the cost is is clearly a big thing, and it certainly would cost way more than Bath Rugby themselves could afford. It's um, an, a, a stone stadium is, no doubt about it, more expensive than a steel stadium. However, we do not regard this as impossible if you take a sufficient long-term view. And for that to happen, you need to develop the leisure centre site in tandem with the um, stadium site. The commercial space that you can generate is significant, and that would allow shops, bars, restaurants and hotels to be designed and to operate and to um, draw revenue. And importantly, that revenue would be coming in, you know, all week long. It wouldn't just be on match days. It would enable the, the visitor to Bath and the Bath resident to cross over the river and not feel they're in a completely different territory. And it would create a completely new sort of route of public domain and of public offer, commercial offer um, for enjoyment, for life and for spending money. Therefore, you just need a long term view, maybe not such a long term view as John Wood originally had when they were building all those magnificent crescents, but something more of that order. You have to have the balls to want to do this kind of thing. You have to have the vision, uh, the commitment and the long-term investment, and then it will pay for itself. So the Coliseum plan would depend on Bath Rugby teaming up with other developers to rethink the whole thing. When I asked Mark how he'd score the likelihood of that happening, he blended realism with optimism. Well, the likelihood of something like this happening would be, let's say, low. I don't know about a score, but it, it couldn't be higher than 10%, could it? I mean, we are in the real world. We are in, in, in modern Britain. And, you know, building in Britain is complicated. So I don't imagine that suddenly, oh, uh, you know, a public swell of opinion is going to come and then oh, it's suddenly going to happen. But, you know, you never know if the seed is good enough if the germ idea is good enough perhaps it will persuade people who have the resources and the the expertise to really evaluate the scheme and and therefore work out whether my claim that you would be able to ge generate the revenue is indeed true and you know with the necessary calculations and knocking people's heads together maybe the powers that be could actually realize that it would ultimately be in their best interests and not only in their best interests but in the best interests of the people of Bath and, and everyone around the world who love this historic city. Thank you Mark Wilson-Jones and thank you Peter Davenport. Now turning from things that might be to things that are, my colleague Will Mann, editor of Construction Management, has been keeping tabs on the unfolding situation with rack in schools and other buildings. He has some important news to report. Building safety is in the news again. 
This time it's crumbling concrete, or to be more technical, reinforced, autoclaved, aerated concrete, often known by its acronym RAC. RAC structural panels are present in many buildings across the UK, and some of them may be in danger of collapse. But a potential solution to the problem could lie with an artificial intelligence tool developed by a team from Loughborough University. I spoke to Professor Chris Gorse and Dr Karen Blay, who are also members of the Chartered Institute of Building. First, here's Chris Gorse with some background to RAC. It first really showed itself in the 1950s, 60s and 70s in the UK. We had two companies that we know of who were manufacturing reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete. Um, and what what we have seen uh, is that um, it, it's common across all of our public building stock. Um, we we we've found it in our health service, in our educational buildings, in school buildings, uh, in university estates. It's produced from fine crushed sand um, with a, a cementious material, normally ordinary Portland cement or blast furnace sag or pulverized fuel ash. Different quantities. We found very different um, sort of. Uh, uh, aggregates sort of uh, in in the sand and 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 then different types of of construction. So there is variation in the materials produced um, and, and and the placement of the reinforcement. And it's the it's the inconsistencies in the manufacturing the assembly process that are causing the problem. It's been designed to use as a structural uh, flooring and roofing material, but it can we we we've seen it used. Within frames uh, uh, and where the where the where the floors are sitting on concrete frames or steel frames or the roofs are sitting on them, but we've also uh, got whole buildings that are produced. So where the the walls, the floors, and the roofs are bolted together, um, and and you get a whole structure that that is made of of rack. The products might have been designed as relatively temporary construction but not necessarily the 25 years that we've that, that, that people are banding around so there's there's no, we've not found any evidence that it was originally designed for that particular lifespan um and i suppose what 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 we have to say is that um, we have seen rack in various states um uh, 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 sort of various states of degradation and, uh, and condition and normally that's brought on by water ingress corrosion and, and spalling sometimes it's where, where uh, the structures have been overloaded uh, uh, and we see material spalling off and breaking um, but that's often to do with the maintenance or or the, the failure of roof membranes that, are, that have caused some of the, the roofing or roofing materials to um, degrade. Chris Gorse and his Loughborough colleagues were called in by the NHS a couple of years ago to help with the rack problem in hospitals. Working with the NHS, the Loughborough team have been looking at how rack data is collected. They've also been developing a machine learning tool that uses photographic archives to identify cracks in rack panels and predict how they may behave. Here's Karen Blay to explain in more detail. Okay, so uh, we started this project, I think it was around um, August 2021, and um, NHS commissioned us to look into RAC, mainly to try and understand um, 
how RAC behaves, look at their RAC survey uh, methodology, so how data is captured, and also uh, co-develop a solution with the maintenance team in terms of how best they can um, observe the behavior of RAC and also um, um, come up with solutions in terms of predictive maintenance, i.e. When, when it's best to maintain and what um, risk in terms of the risk rating and what they need to do differently. We're looking at how best we can use AI to detect defects on rack. And we decided to use cracks as an example. So we first looked at cracks on normal concrete because there's there was very little data, public data out there on cracks on rack because we then had to develop, uh, take pictures ourselves because that, that didn't exist. So the historical images that we have trained on normal concrete, actually, is 85,220 images. But for the rack, we took about 1,850 images with the, within the trusts that we visited. So we used that, um, the historical general concrete to train the system. But then, and then we took about 1,800 images of rack cracks. And then we use that to train um, the system. Yes. So in terms of the accuracy, it was 95.8% uh, of the AI executable code that we have developed. We've now developed a program, a software. So we have sets of images that have um, cracks in them or not. Uh, once you run it through the software, it can separate and let you know the images that have cracks on the rack. And also, we also have the timestamps in terms of when some of the pictures we're taking. So from a survey process, uh, what we are now looking to do is integrate that with the existing survey process of the NHS. We, we wrote um, in Python using PyTorch. So it was a program we wrote in LAFRA um, to be able to identify. So once you put X amount of images in it, it will sort them out and let you know which of the images have cracks in the rack, which they don't. And also the position of, of, um, of the, where, sorry, the location of the crack. So moving forward, we are then looking at how, I'm sure you had the term digital twins, how we are we creating a twin of these racks so that we can then understand um, the, how the changes happen. So it's all about capturing change. We are going to live with rack. So it's about how do we capture the data after you put in um, your fail saves moving forward? How can we um, extend the lifespan? How can we proactively predict the behavior of, of RAC using digital um, solutions in terms of accuracy, in terms of integrated data capture, in terms of generating insights that will help us make better decisions? What is also exciting about the artificial intelligence tool is it could help with the requirements of the Building Safety Act and the golden thread of information. Here's Chris Gorse again. I think the AI has given a lot of bad press, but one of the things that it is able to do is, is recognise things relatively easily and sort through thousands of sets of data. So, so it, it, in a way, the ability to recognise changes in rack, um, it, it, the AI and the data capture that that, that we hope to see developed could would work as a very useful backup system um so th this project really does align well with um the building safety act so in the building safety act we're you know dame judith hackett uh, advised we we need a golden thread of information and what is apparent 
through this and obviously with the likes of Grenfell is, is we just haven't got uh, a, a good knowledge of the, the building structure um, and, the, and the products used. But importantly, when we come across something like rack, we don't have that knowledge of the, the composition of the materials and how they perform. Chris Gorse and Karen Blay from Loughborough University, thank you very much. Thanks, Will. That sounds like it could be very useful indeed. And thanks, Chris Gorse and Karen Blay. We hope to get you back on the show as the situation develops. And now it's time to bust some jargon. Welcome to 21cc's Jargon Buster. I'm Justin Stanton, editor of BIM Plus, and each month 21cc tackles an acronym or bit of industry slang related to construction and its modernisation. This month we're tackling emissions, specifically Scope 3 emissions. With sustainability moving up on corporate agendas, even in construction, you need to know your emissions scopes. There are three of them, developed by the Greenhouse Gas Protocol. They are claimed to be the only internationally accepted method for organisations to account for emissions. Scope 1 encompasses direct emissions from owned or controlled sources, for example from fuel use by plant or vehicles, while Scope 2 covers indirect emissions from the purchase of energy, electricity, heat and cooling, etc. Scope 3 includes all other indirect emissions that occur in the upstream and downstream activities of an organisation. In construction, this includes the emissions related to the manufacture, distribution, use and reuse or disposal of every single product and material that a structure is built out of. Scope 3 also includes the likes of business travel, employee commuting and leased assets. It is generally accepted that the vast majority of a business's carbon footprint is covered by Scope 3. So measuring and thus managing down your Scope 3 emissions can have a much greater impact on your road to low carbon or net zero. If there's a bit of industry jargon or an acronym that you'd like 21cc to tackle, Drop us a line at 21cc at atompublishing.co.uk. Thanks for that, Justin. Now, the topic of global warming takes us to the Antarctic, where its effects will be dramatic. There, the British Antarctic Survey, or BAS, is building a new research and operations facility at its Rothera station on Adelaide Island. I caught up with a couple of young engineers to find out more. The Discovery Building at Rothera is two storeys in height, 90 metres long and 4,500 square metres in area. Ordinarily, putting it up on a free patch of ground wouldn't pose too many problems for a construction team, but this is no ordinary project. Crews can only work during the short Antarctic summer, from around November to April. They have to plan each season obsessively because everything, right down to the last bolt, must come more than 9,000 miles by ship from the UK. Crews go down at the start of the season, usually flying to the Falkland Islands and then travelling by ship four or five days to Rothera. There, they work, rest and play with the hundred or so bass scientists and staff who populate the station in summer. Contractor BAM leads the project team with engineers Ramball and Suiko on site. In the last building season, the team of 60 finished the cladding laid the first floor slabs and lifted the building's operations tower into place, a move they rehearsed in Scotland to get right. 
I'm fascinated by the project, especially what it's like to be stuck down there in such an extreme environment. So when I got the chance to speak to a couple of young engineers who'd done it, I jumped. I was thinking how how would I be able to fit in, you know, working with working with sixty construction workers day in day out and and living together in a in a relatively isolated community, but I'm just so grateful that I was able to have this really good relationship with the construction workers. I just felt like I was very comfortable working and and living with them, and and I don't think you get that working relationship with your colleagues back at home. That's Connie Pang, a senior structural engineer at Ramball who worked this past season as site supervisor in the Bass Project Management Office team. Like when when I was studying civil engineering, I didn't expect <laughs> to do anything like that. But I mean, it's just an opportunity you can't turn down. But like even in dinner, you could be sitting at a table with a marine biologist, an engineer, a crane operative, a pilot, a doctor. That's why I, like, I'm going back for my third season in, in November. So, And that's Stuart Webster a section engineer with BAM. This was his second season at Rothera, supervising temporary works and planning lifting and other activities. I wanted to know how they prepared for the cold. Temperatures in the Antarctic summer hover around zero degrees Celsius, but regular gales can create a wind chill factor as low as minus 20. What's it like to work at a site where frostbite is a safety risk? I collected my PPE when I had my pre-deployment training back in September. So I had uh, my sunglasses, all my layers, um, my thermals, my even to, to my socks, to gloves, liners and boots. The, the idea is that if you're feeling too cold, the first thing to do is go back to have a cup of tea or have, have something warm to, to, to eat. Just try to warm yourself up. Try not to push your limit you know um we, we are there to to work safely to to come back with all our digits and what about privacy the, the good thing about the person uh, pre-deployment training was part of it is for people that have been before to give you tips so i was i was really conscious that i was going to annoy my roommates with snoring and things like that so i was like looking on amazon for like three or four different preventions sticking stuff up your nose and no one likes annoying people but i had that in the back of my mind i think as well part of the pre-deployment training we look and assess people to see who would get along well with each other and who could maybe potentially share a room together it's just getting better and better the station relationships so they must be doing something right their working week is long 7 a.m to 7 p.m monday to friday and 7 to 5 on saturday if they don't have to make up time lost to weather they can take sundays off but the satellite internet doesn't allow live tv streaming so what on earth do they do Sunday morning, you, you have a lie-in, you wake up, there's a Sunday brunch at 12 o'clock where we have full English breakfast. It's just like a highlight of the week that everyone's look forward to the Sunday brunch. If the weather is really good, I, I like go skiing, driving the skidoo, taxiing people, the snowboarding. In the afternoon, I, I would more likely to be in the lounging area where um, I usually spend the afternoon playing jigsaw with with some other people, board games. One time we had managed to get some of the construction workers to help me to to complete a thousand piece of of jigsaw. So that was was good. And and a bit of drawing. I quite like to do a bit of sketching. I felt like I talked a lot more and I went not as much on my phone. I actually got like into exercise quite a lot. So I ended up losing, I think it was like 
two and a half stone. There was people that used to be like personal trainers down on station that just kind of put you in that mindset and kind of got you eating the right stuff. Uh, other people would teach languages at night. Other people would like learn a new instrument. So there's many different instruments, drum set. The first season I went, there was maybe like four or five different Rovera bands. There's like science talks as well. So people like like to show their research. Everyone just kind of lets each other do their own thing. And that's the best bit about it. When it's nice, the place is beautiful, with majestic icy mountains and seals, penguins and whales doing their thing nearby. But being cut off from the rest of the world can take its toll. One of the struggles that, that came to mind was um, when it was my partner's birthday. I didn't think it would be that overwhelming for me. I, I, I left him a birthday card, I left him a birthday gift, and, and I could just call him and send him a message and wish him a happy birthday. Um, but actually, while I was on the date, I, I, I was just really sad that I couldn't be there for him. And I just didn't expect that for me at all. I think the the easiest way was just talking to people. When you open up and talk to people and say, oh, you know, it was my partner's birthday today, um, but but I couldn't be there for him, so I felt a little bit upset. And and you'd be surprised how how much other people can can relate to it. I think it's just good to talk to people about it. Um, it's no point to bottom up thinking that you can manage all by yourself. It can get a little bit too much, and but we do take our well-being very seriously. With the pre-deployment week for the week prior to heading down, we bring in these companies to give you certain ways of freeing up your head, sleeping techniques, fatigue management. We give them like exercises. This company had like elite athletes telling you there was like an Olympian long jumper. The message was even people at the highest level of sport still have struggles, and it's to show that anyone can talk about it. We do um, mental health and well being like champion so i've got it myself where i've went on a training course and i can help signpost people to some advice or even if they just want a, a big event like a big chat there's a, f- a few people there that can assist and help with them connie and stewart were back in the uk when we spoke but stewart's mind was very much on the next construction season he's already planning one of its set pieces the building will have a special feature a big curving wind deflector that'll stop snow piling up to the roof and beyond. He was trying to figure out whether to use a scaffold or a lifting jig. When the season comes, though, they're going to need quite a few options, as Connie explains. I've been very, very impressed with how BAM uh, as a team can be very flexible. Awful lot of planning and thoughts has gone into planning their programs, their construction sequence, and yet they, they still have to deal with unpredictable weathers day in day out they can plan five different situations and 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 it will be the weather that will make them to have to think of a sixth different situations on, on the day especially towards the end of the season where they're thinking ahead of how they pack the things away if we're going to put our plants in these certain areas then next season when we come back we can snow clear better and they all learn from their previous knowledge and i think that that is super valuable and i don't think many of the construction sites can say that you know in in rothera you need to think of okay if, if you put your tools on the ground, if it snows overnight, you're never going to see it and you don't know what's buried in it. So I think that that amount of knowledge um, and, and what they do has been very, very impressive. Thanks, Connie and Stuart. It was great to meet you. Good luck to the crews heading back down for the penultimate construction season this November. Hopefully, now the Discovery Building is sealed, you can spend more time working out of the wind. And good luck for the completion scheduled for 2025. 
That's all we have time for this month. We hope you found it interesting. If you like the podcast, tell others by rating it wherever you found it. Give us a mention on social media with the hashtag 21ccpodcast. Email us on 21cc at atompublishing.co.uk. Thanks for listening.